Welcome to the discussion, Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA. Here's today's moderator, Tom Tamman. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Robert Carey. He's Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. We've got Karen Evans, Chief Information Officer at the Department of Homeland Security, and Brian Gattoni, Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, part of DHS. It's good to have you all. And we really are in sort of a brave new world these days with seemingly 90% of the federal workforce teleworking, and for that matter, 90% of the contractor workforce teleworking. So if you are not enabling a really fully equipped federal workforce or federal or, or private workforce, whatever the case might be, you've got certain risks. If you've got a lot of people enabled with VPNs and new bandwidth and reach out, you've also got risks. So, uh, Karen, I think we're going to start with you. Let's discuss what are the big picture risks, both for a highly enabled remote workforce and where maybe agencies lag behind getting those people up and running. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Tom. I'm really excited. I started as the DHS CIO right in the middle of the response. And I would have to say that the way that DHS has moved out and a lot of the work that the department has done in the past has enabled that workforce and enabled the capability to have telework happening. Based on what you're asking, though, now the threat landscape has changed because as we've changed the way that we're working and the way that our employees are conducting their work and doing their work, our adversaries know that we have changed the way that we're doing work. It's not people are physically coming into the building, but that they're working from their homes. Their equipment are onto their networks doing a VPN um, back into DHS. And so when that happens, you have to change the way that you're managing the risk and the way that the, the services that are being provided. Um, we went from uh, the way that they used to have it. We can maintain now up to 120,000 concurrent users. That definitely is changing the way that, that our threat and the way that our adversaries are looking at our enterprise. Yes, and uh, Brian, I heard one federal official say the other day that this agency is kind of a federated collection, the particular agency. It has a number of centers across the country, but now with 60, 70,000 people teleworking, it's got 60 or 70,000 centers. I think that's building on what Karen said. What's your view and what are some of the inherent risks? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, my view is that all the training that you know individual federal employees go through for their cybersecurity and awareness uh, needs to prepare them to take on additional responsibilities that professional teams like what Karen provides for our department now gets on their shoulders a little bit for the security of their home networks, right? So I'm, I'm working from home. I'm an employee of DHS. My wife's working from home. She's a employee of the Department of Interior. My kids are schooling from home and they're all students in the Fairfax County public school system. That means I'm an IT troubleshooter and security professional for two departments and a local government to make sure that everything's, everything's safe. That training and those rules you take on place, you have to take home with you now and understand your responsibility to access your data safely, secure your networks, leverage the secure solutions that are provided to you by your agencies to do your job and, and be a good citizen in that respect. Yeah, so in other words, even though the home environment might feel differently and you've got the refrigerator and all the rest of it that we all talk about, nevertheless, you have to think of yourself as being in the federal setting because you are on that federal VPN and therefore that's the rules. Absolutely. And none of the homework assignments go to Karen for grading? I'll get some of the technical ones over to her. I'd appreciate her input with my 15-year-old. All right. And, and Rob Carey, you've got both the federal experience and now in the private sector. From the standpoint of RSA, looking across government, what are some of the trends you're seeing and how are they dealing with these threat vectors? Thanks, Tom, um, and great to be here. Um, you know, we're watching the, the number of attacks. The sheer volume is up. Uh, the types of attacks are uh, predicated upon, as Karen said, uh, the attack services change. There are different vulnerabilities being exposed. Um, everybody's dialing in from home, as Brian said. And so now the home PC, the home laptop, you know, we're using VPNs, uh, the distributed workforce. You don't have the same team aspect of how we make decisions in order to maintain this central security focus of the network. 
So, so to me, you know, we're seeing that the architecture has to change a little bit to embrace this new operating model. And, and there does not seem to be an end to this operating model. It may come back a little bit towards um, uh, the old way, if you will, where maybe 10% of your workforce was, was teleworking. But at the same time, we've also demonstrated that we can secure the networks that we can deliver uh, on the mission of our organizations, DHS or, or whatever, and, and, and do it in a distributed manner. So I think there's both goods and bads. There's things to keep our eye on, and then there are things that we're probably gonna have to really double down on from a centrally managed security aspect. And we've been talking about the attack surface, and maybe we should define that a little bit more carefully because you've got, as we mentioned, home routers, uh, presumably government-issued equipment on those home routers, and then you've got the VPN, which presumably is encrypted. So how does this attack surface morph and change, and what do the CISOs, CIOs, CTOs need to worry about with this kind of spider-like uh, setup that we've got? Karen? So when we talk about the attack service, you, you've described it well, because most people are using their home networks, right? And so, um, and, and I, there is a lot of responsibility back on the employee in order to be able to make this work. But there are a couple other things that the federal government has been working on for years that are really coming into play. And things such as your mobile device and uh, using your work device, using your phone, um, using these different tools that were there and two-factor authentication, and I'm sure Brian's gonna say some stuff on this, is, is that that's key. Because if you have, um, if an agency hasn't done the two-factor authentication or derived credentials or the ability to be able to be present uh, on your your device as well as a hard computer and those types of things. The CIOs and CISOs have been working on this security model for years. And so now you have the ability to make it operational and things that you've been talking about, the importance of network modernization, of moving to the cloud, you know, um, doing IT modernization, making your, your applications available in the cloud and, and having apps. All of that has meaning now because now you are enabling your workforce through that secure model. But when we say the attack surfaces is changing, our, our adversaries know now we're using cloud providers, we're using the mobile device, we are at home. And so you have to be a little bit more cognizant of, of what you are putting out there. And I just saw this on an article the other day about um, how we are displaying things when we connect in through, through uh, video conferencing just like this and what's in the background and what are we really talking about and what are we giving away about personally identifiable information associated with that individual who's calling in on a call. These are things that people need to think about now um, because people are taking up this information and that has changed. You are now giving people insight into what does your house look like and, so, and, and what are personal things like all the pictures behind you. What does that actually mean? Some people have done a great job about advertising books, if you look at some of the things that are out there, but you really need to be cognizant of what you are displaying on these video conferences and people are jumping on them um, all over the place, you know, to do all kinds of work. And so we, we really need to be cognizant of that, about what are we saying about ourselves when we're joining the video conferencing. Yeah, good point. And Brian, as the CTO of CISA, I wanted to ask you also, the, a lot of the cybersecurity emphasis in this mobile remote environment has been on the mobile device as defined uh, as, as having iOS or Android type of operating system. And then there's segmentation, containerization, and so forth, and a lot of emphasis there. But a lot of people are using standard laptop, notebook, PCs, and, and MacBooks, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes those get short shrift because they're not mobile devices, but nevertheless, they're devices used in a mobile fashion. So maybe talk about some of the attack surface issues with respect to the, all, the, all the devices that are on the network. 
Sure. You know, some of the, some of the, you know, great features we enjoy here at DHS from our, our CIO shop is mobile devices that enable connectivity, right? So I, I have the ability to connect my laptop through my mobile device and the data plan to maintain sort of, you know, a little secure uh, ecosystem of, of provided information. I don't necessarily have to use uh, my home router uh, if I don't want to. But those devices are, those are your access mechanisms. So you, you have the, the human that's accessing uh, the information through the mechanism. You have the encryption and secure capabilities on both the, the device itself and the communication channels. And then you have where the data lies, right? And so one of the focuses uh, to be aware of is the data you're interacting with doing business on behalf of the government or your company, if the sensitivity is in that data and its protection, know where it is and what protection schemas there are for it. If I'm accessing data through a secure VPN uh, on a secure uh, data service in, a, in an unclassified sense, that data protection's on that end. And so I just have to maintain physical control of my device over here and protect it, but the protection's in the actual connections themselves and the data at rest. If you have it at home on your laptop and the data's on your laptop and you've got encrypted drives, again, it comes back to physical control and physical protection of your device, but you can you know, rest reasonably assured that pro proper protection schemas are in place for the data there. So taking advantage of the IT modernization, the opportunity to secure, and the technology opportunities that are there with modern uh, computing solutions, protecting your data is really the key. So understanding where it is, is very helpful in that sense. Yes, and uh, Rob, uh, on that note, uh, there is the question of architecture, because in some cases, mobile devices have been used simply for the display of information, but no processing taking place aboard. But now you're hearing more and more agencies saying, well, you know, there's all that processing power out there. That's part of the, uh, of the uh, computing ecosystem. Why shouldn't mobile devices have data and process it locally. And then the second question is the variety of devices because they have different operating systems, different versions within the families of operating systems. So you get kind of a uh, zoological diversity in what is out there that has to be protected and supported. So what, what do you see and what do you advise as strategies for all that diversity, I guess you could call it, of, of architectures and of device species? Well, uh, so, so uh, great question, Tom. I think, you know, based on what Karen and, and Brian have said, you know, the, the diversity, we, we, we made an almost an overnight shift from a reasonably coherent network architecture that we all knew and loved. Our CISOs could reach out and touch everything they wanted, almost everything they wanted, to something that is, is highly diverse. And, and to me, it requires a more centralized look at all that broad, broad spectrum of, of devices and being able to manage and monitor that stuff. So at the end of the day, tying in, where's the data? If the data is in the cloud, great. If the data is on a server inside the firewall, you're now penetrating that firewall to get at your work. So, so now that, that ecosystem is got a various flavors of whether it's a phone, a tablet, a, a laptop, a home PC, what have you, you're using PKI, you're using another authentication mechanism. It requires something to manage that holistically and then tell the SOC, hey, something's not right over here, right? Some, something is erroneous. And, and so I need to be able to, to diffuse the diversity of the ecosystem and manage it holistically. And I think that's, that's really the, the key to this thing is looking in and, and not worrying too much about the fact that there is diversity, embracing that diversity, and then creating that single pane of glass back in the sock for somebody to make decisions. And uh, Karen, of course, Homeland Security operates the CDM program and the guidelines and issues many of the tools for this continuous diagnostics and mitigation. Does all of the remote working affect that program and can agencies or have you seen agencies adapt to be able to continuously monitor those devices that are just not within the agency walls anymore? When we look at the CDM program that's, uh, that CISA has put in place for all of us to use, and, I'm, I, and in this particular case, I am a user, just like the rest of the departments and agencies here, as it relates to that, the tools are there. It's to Rob's point about we have to really take a look at what are we now 
um, managing and what are we looking at? And, uh, and, and what can we, from a technical perspective, actually really be able to monitor on a continuous basis? So I'm gonna give an example. I'm sure Brian's gonna have some thoughts on this as well, but one of the capabilities that comes up that we are looking at as to the reason why, how we can actually manage this is the ability to be able to print remotely. Right now, most people are set up in a way where everything is coming in because you're teleworking. And so if I print, when I come into the office, it's actually sitting on my printer. Uh, but if you're gonna continue, which it looks like this environment is, we're gonna be in this hybrid environment probably perpetually, right? Because now that we know we can do it, we should be doing it, um, you may have to print. So this gets to, to Brian's point about controlling the data and knowing what your responsibilities are. So this is all, you know, is the data properly marked? Do you have the capability to actually dispose of that document if you print it on a personally owned printer that's connected to your router in your network, even though you're making a VPN connection? Because you would be able to do some of that um, if we allow it, right? Because so think of the thumb drives right now, like we took that all off. Nobody could save things locally. It's all encrypted, all this other stuff. Well, now we have to think about from a risk profile standpoint, does it make sense that we say, okay, um, certain people are gonna have to print just based on the work that they're doing, they're gonna have to be able to print. So can I now, from a CDM perspective, look at the tools that are available, monitor who's remotely printing, what, and then be able to tag documents because I'm in a cloud environment and based on the tools I'm using, really know who's actually downloaded document, tag it, what type of information was in there. So now I'm into my insider threat program. It has now expanded. The insider threat program has totally expanded because of this hybrid environment we have. The tools are there. We have to think about what's the risk that we wanna manage and then be able to monitor it to Rob's point so that it goes to the SOC and that we know what's going on. All right, Brian, we're going to get to you on this question in just a moment. But first, I think we'll take a short break. My guests today are Karen Evans. She's the Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Brian Gattoni is the Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And Robert Carey, Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA here on Federal News Network. RSA NetWitness Platform is an evolved SIM and threat defense solution, empowering federal security teams to rapidly detect and automatically respond to threats before damage is done. Designed to align mission context to security risks, RSA NetWitness Platform closes the gaps of technology-only solutions and ensures that IT security is optimized to support your mission's strategic goals. Learn how RSA NetWitness Platform can help your agency. Visit rsa.com slash public sector. That's rsa.com slash public sector. Welcome back to Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Robert Carey, the Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. Karen Evans is the Chief Information Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. And Brian Gattoni, Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And Brian, before the break, we were talking about the CDM program and you being the CTO at CISA should know a lot about that. And so tell us how that has been affected and in particular, what is incumbent on agencies doing CDM uh, in this age of mass telework with everything so diffuse and so diverse. Sure, uh, to, to follow up on Karen's points and, and where the CDM tool set enables agencies to help manage risks in their networks, it's understanding how that risk profile is shifting. It's, it's a very pertinent use case to understand you know, how these capabilities while securing the network enable our employees to meet their mission. And, and printing is a really good use case for a risk management discussion because printing to a local printer means accepting risk in one of a couple of different areas. And it is up to each individual agency to figure out where that risk can be managed. And CDM needs to give them the tool sets to do that and enable those choices. Th those risks are allow the computers to, to print, all right, push the file across that home network to a, a home printer, right, allow that capability. It's 
uh, a risk trade-off with uh, what I would consider a less preferable option, and that is employees start to email documents to their personal accounts and use their personal uh, computing devices to get that hard copy into their hands uh, versus uh, issuing additional technologies that make interacting with hard copy media a little bit easier, such as, you know, iPads or, or, or tablets or surfaces, you know, what have you, that allow folks to get that uh, tangible, I'm reading a thing and can mark up on it, you know, feeling to hit their mission, but doesn't require producing paper that then requires appropriate storage or, or uh, destruction, right? So figuring out where that risk combination is for your employees and their mission is an important concept and using CDM tools to help manage the, you know, monitoring of data moving across those devices is important. Yeah, and uh, Robert, that gets into an area that uh, both Karen and Brian touched on and that you should also know, I know, I know you know from your, from your federal experience, but sometimes in, in the drive to cybersecurity and protection, we forget about the mission and that people actually do have to do work in some kind of well-lubricated machinery. And sometimes the cybersecurity measures, as has been mentioned over the years, can get in the way of that. And so people find these workarounds like sending to personal email and so forth. So maybe comment on, on how to keep the mission and the user in mind, even as you implement deep cybersecurity. Um, well, yeah, a good, a good question, Tom. So, so the, the, really the network is the mission right now, right? It carries it on its back. Um, and I think Karen and, and Brian would attest that the minute you start overlapping your home network and your work network and, and you try to get something done, you raise your risk meter, just end of discussion. So, so if you're the CISO and, and the CIO and I'm a recovering CIO, Karen's now reliving the dream again. But, but we're at that point where we have to really stare at this and how do I enable mission to be accomplished? Print is a fine example because suddenly the minute you, you overlap architectures, you have uh, inherent risk challenges there. There are other aspects of you know, what I like to refer to as an old term, role-based access. So when we want to control data, have we gone in and, and really um, fine tuned access to data sets or applications at the level that we want? Because there are some things that are so sensitive and they may be controlled on classified information that you don't want printed at home. You don't want it to even be able to get there, right? And, and so it, we have to stare at the problem a, a little more fine and with finer uh, uh, lenses than we have in the past because all that work has been done at 7D or any other building in the government. So it's, it's down the hall. The printer's down the hall. That's easy. It's not easy when the printer's on somebody's desk at home. And then people sort of overlook sometimes, I'm trying to get my work done as opposed to I'm trying to get my work done securely. So we have to, have to stare at the problem a little bit differently in order to ensure mission gets uh, accomplished and mission gets accomplished securely. All right, let's uh, talk about something also Rob mentioned earlier, and that is the Security Operations Center, the SOX. And a lot of those people are actually probably still going in. And one of the issues as people begin to get visibility into networks, and that becomes an important activity, they're looking at network activity, but you're also looking now at hundreds of thousands, in some cases, of mobile devices. And so, this produces a lot of data. How can the SOC be made to be able to process this information, not get overwhelmed by the amount of data, and yet not leave out any data that it might need in order to do the analysis to find the threats? I see that as kind of a growing problem. We hear this across the government. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, this is a ripe technology opportunity space right, uh, for automation, right? And, and so as analysts, as analysts go through their routine, you know, business practices to understand the data and developing insights they need to be reactive, they're, they're crafting playbooks. They're, they're turning their intuition into uh, decision science that we can automate and leverage technology like service orchestration, automated response capabilities, uh, some of which are, are in the in the CDM pipeline to get the hard stuff off, or the easy stuff off their plate so they can focus on the hard stuff. So those routine items become recommendations. If they have an automated response, it happens and they just get a they just get a report of that activity and they can focus back on the harder challenges. Karen. 
So, Tom, I think this is where you're going to start seeing the value of uh, moving forward with the marriage between a chief data officer and how the chief information officer is looking at how what's the right risk profile for the information and the mission that we have. The other piece is, um, to Brian's point, is this is also a really good environment and you're starting to see a lot of innovation around this about using machine learning and um, artificial intelligence. And so a lot of things associated with it, you can automate, you can have the machines learn, you can have certain things happen. Technology has evolved to the point, and so in my previous job at Department of Energy, there was a lot of work we were doing around uh, machine learning and how artificial intelligence could work and how you could have a software-defined network that was actually self-healing and then make use of newer technologies and what you'll see um, going forward and what what is really being evaluated now is how do you use things such as quantum networks and quantum uh, physics to be able to enable all of that technology and that innovation so that certain things that are happening can automatically be fixed before it even comes in because you know what, what your endpoints are and that the SOC is going to evolve and it's not going to be a traditional SOC the way that we've seen them in the past, but it's going to be able to take advantage and really leverage this innovation so that it's not like, oh, I got to switch this out and I have to do this. That equipment, the way that we're going to work with vendors, the way that we're going to work in this community is you know, something as simple, uh, simple as, you know, getting packets not even to come in, right? To be able to say, okay, this just doesn't even look right. So it's not even going to come into the enterprise and you can block it. You can do these things right now. It's all in testing. This innovation is there. You can do it in transit on the network. And so to Rob's point, the network and how we manage and how we enable the security on the network is actually going to change the dynamic of how we um, manage what our threat landscape is. So there's a lot of promise and a lot of innovation that's out there right now. Yeah, and Rob, Karen mentioned something that we're seeing widely too, and that is the software-defined network, the last extension, if you will, of the virtualization drive. And then that brings up the issue of the fact that virtual machines are pretty agile gadgets. They can be spun down, they can be spun up, but often in between the spinning down and the spinning up, maybe a patch was issued for one of them. And so it becomes a question of not setting and forgetting, but making sure that when that virtual machine does come back, that it's monitors as if it's a brand new device on the network. Is that something you're seeing? Is that something agencies are getting adept at understanding and implementing? It, it, it is, uh, Tom, because at, at the end of the day, technology in certain areas is moving at light speed. Um, uh, virtual machines have been around for a long time, but the network is a living and breathing entity, if you will. And so when you do your scans, and, and continuous monitoring actually does mean continuous, right? But at the same time, we know that uh, the SOC, that center of knowledge, somebody's staring at a pane of glass and trying to be able to render a decision on behalf of, of the boss of, of an action that needs to be taken, right? So as the network continues to evolve and grow and data is traversing it, you know, you have Fred Intel coming in, you're trying to, you know, make sure you're stopping things from coming in. You are reaching into clouds to see what's going on in your uh, IP address space in the clouds. And then you have this, as we talked about early on, this wide variety of endpoints that you're now trying to keep an eye on. So, so to me, you know, as we move in software defined, we have to be mindful of this diversity of the network architecture. And then we have to have a central node that can to manage this at, at net speed. As, as General Keith Alexander used to say years ago, we have to operate at net speed, which to, to Brian's point is the automation piece. And the automation piece actually isn't quite there yet as far as um, its ability to respond directly uh, at times um, at the speed at which it's desired to, but it is coming faster and faster, the ability to, to drive home um, information that supports a decision being made in the SOC. All right. And uh, what about the SOC workforce? I mean, how do they have to change and adopt? Because we sometimes take them for granted. 
because we all say that you can't take the human ever out of the equation in the kill chain of cybersecurity. And yet at the same time, we say we want to automate as much of, of the decision-making that they don't need to do. So maybe discuss briefly the, the SOC workforce, the security workforce, security operations center workforce, and how that their jobs are changing and their knowledge needs are changing. Sure. And, and uh, Rob's exactly right on the potential for automation. And so you bring the workforce into mind, right, uh, to uh, abuse and then flip an analogy, right? Like I'm not looking to automate finding the needle in a haystack. That's, that might be an insurmountable challenge at this point. But maybe I can automate getting hay off the haystack, right, and make their right. jobs easier so that when they start to figure out what needles they want to go after, there's less noise uh, in the signal for them to, to sift through. So keeping them at, at front of mind, what their goals, what their mission, what their, their results need to be as you put these technologies in place has to be front and center. Karen? Well, and, and so Tom, I appreciate that you're asking about staff because you know cybersecurity workforce is always important to me, but I am gonna be a little controversial here because you are being very focused on the SOC. And I would say that what we're doing here at DHS headquarters is actually combining the network operations center and the security operations center. So there's an initiative that we're calling the NOS. And so um, the way that that's working to Rob's point and to Brian's point, it's, it's bringing both those pieces together so that you have situational awareness of what's happening across the board. So you need different skill sets depending on what you're doing, especially as you're running an operation. So you should think of some of this as you need a group of people that are doing network capabilities, running operations, being making sure that the telework environment is there, the mission can be done, but they're like first responders or they're in the emergency room, right? They're doing triage so that they can keep the operations going, but they know and they have the skill sets to do the analytics and say, well, this doesn't quite look right, but I have to keep this network connection up and running. So I now need to hand it off to another set of folks who are looking at it from a security perspective of, oh, this isn't right. So this is, this is Brian's point about, you know, the needle in the haystack, like what needles are we gonna look at? The team has to be able to get the noise out of the system, then elevate it, triage it, and send it to the set of experts who can say, oh, we really have a big problem here. We have to do X, Y, Z. So yeah. it's a combination of both of that, it's not separate anymore. And when you start looking at some of the organizations, and I'm sure Brian's seeing this as he's working with um, multiple departments and agencies and state and local governments, it's marrying those two together so that you have a network security operations center that can manage to your risk profile, keep the ops going for the mission, but then hand off the information so that the analytics can be done about what is actually happening as it relates to threat. Yes, because my understanding that is until now, that has been something agencies have not wanted to do. Uh, they, right. They should be separated and remain so, the Network Operations Center and the Security Operations Center. So is this DHS doing this or as a model for the rest of government or? Well, we're doing it. DHS is doing it. And so, um, and we... You know, we are, are an oversight piece to CISA, but we're also a department of a, an agency that has to implement the rules and the policies that CISA is putting out for the civilian agencies. So we're doing this model. The other thing, when you asked about um, the workforce, the other piece that DHS has, which is really very exciting, that we're working with our chief human capital officer on, and we anticipate that we, we hope that the first cohort will come in um, in October is DHS Cybersecurity Service. And so that is not a traditional 2210 computer specialist going forward. It is really looking at what are the skill sets that we need and it's operationalizing the National Institute of Technology, Standards and Technology, NIST, the NICE framework, which is the cyber education framework, right? And so those skill sets are in there and what, um, what Chico has done here in conjunction with CIO and other components within the department is really operationalize this with assessments against major skill sets. So we're working on it, and I know CISA is as well, 
um, of identifying and doing a staffing plan that would be the first ones that we recruit through. And so they're not gonna be traditionally classified in 2210. They're gonna be competitively coming in. And, um, and so take, for example, if a person makes it through who doesn't have a PhD, but actually can make it through the assessments and do all these things, and then um, we can compete with private industry, it could be a high school graduate who has the skill sets based on what I'm looking for and this assessment tool so I can offer them like $150,000 right off the bat. Well, that's a good note to end on, the arrival of the Whiz Kids. My guests today are Karen Evans, Chief Information Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Robert Carey is Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. And Brian Gattoni is the Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA here on Federal News Network. RSA NetWitness Platform is an evolved SIM and threat defense solution, empowering federal security teams to rapidly detect and automatically respond to threats before damage is done. Designed to align mission context to security risks, RSA NetWitness Platform closes the gaps of technology-only solutions and ensures that IT security is optimized to support your mission's strategic goals. Learn how RSA NetWitness Platform can help your agency. Visit rsa.com slash public sector. That's rsa.com slash public sector. Welcome back to Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Robert Carey. He's the Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. Karen Evans, Chief Information Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. And Brian Gattoni is Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's talk about TIC 3.0. The Trusted Internet Connection is a long-standing program, Brian, of Homeland Security. Now that there is the formation of CISA and the refocusing of that whole effort, uh, tell us what's going on with TIC 3.0, how this applies, especially in this new distributed world uh, that, we, that we're all living in. Absolutely. So, you know, TIC 3.0 and, and the effort there, you know, predates our current environment, but is extremely relevant to it. It was to give guidance to enable CIOs to make risk-based decisions as they move to more flexible architectures and could access cloud resources and incorporate them into their overall design and do so from a secure informed posture. One of the things that's, that's critical to it is understanding as these agencies move their individual ways to adopt these cloud technologies, what does that do to their risk surface? What does that do to the data needs, the telemetry needs of the security professionals in the agencies for individual action and at CISA for Overwatch to understand the health and risk and effects on those networks. And then during the course of this, back in April, we issued some interim guidance to help uh, CIOs understand how they can employ some of these capabilities in their advanced telework stages. So broadly supportive of a wide spectrum of architectural approaches. We try to take into account the use of VPNs, right? Uh, expand thoughts to virtual desktop interfaces and desktop as a service capabilities and give some insights into adoption of zero trust capabilities as CIOs move their way to those environments. We're really dealing with a matrix, if you will, as opposed to just everyone accessing the mainframe like they might have done 20 years ago, which was almost a you know, virtual desktop interface version of a 3270 session where you're just going back from one host to that computer. Now everyone's accessing everything all over the place. And uh, so Karen, I guess that really gets into a, uh, it's kind of a government wide issue uh, with Homeland Security being the, maybe the guinea pig, as you mentioned earlier with combining those socks and knocks because everything is so matrixed. Well, and, and the key here is, and Brian hit on that is the ability to manage your risk profile. So you, you have to really know what is the risk tolerance of what what your leadership, what your users, what they need to be able to sustain and then engineer solutions to that. So technology is there, right? I mean, Rob will attest to all of that. 
But I think what you really have to, to really discuss is what is your risk tolerance? And, and as you start doing this, you've mentioned a, a whole host of different technologies. We've talked about cloud. We're talking about network capabilities. We've talked about in innovation, using TIC 3.0 to be able to, to help bring in different things. But the other part of that, and, and Brian talked about this earlier, is you're then inheriting risk from different places and you have to know what that risk is that you're inheriting. And so I am in this, this last little piece gonna bring up a couple things which is related to supply chain risk management. So as we start talking about this and we move to cloud, I'm inheriting the risk of my cloud provider. This is where programs that have been out there really become critical like FedRAMP, right? That's important because then we have to really understand what our cloud providers are doing. So when DHS CISA at that point issues something that is important for all of us to be able to do, I have to turn around to the cloud providers within DHS that are providing my mission service and I have to ensure that they are taking those same precautions that I would if I had a mainframe, like what you're talking about. I have to be able to have a way to attest that they've actually done it. So now we're into how do I deploy it? How did I deploy the TIC architecture? How did I actually deploy the CDM architecture that then gets back into the NOSC and the SOSC in, in order for me to be able to manage it and have that common operating view of what is happening in this hybrid world that you described? Yeah, and Rob, let me ask you a related question because people are accessing resources in the cloud, in the data centers from one another laterally in many cases. And often uh, people are accessing services from the cloud to enable access somewhere else because they're cloud software services also besides hosting. And so that gets into the issue of something we talked about very early in the discussion. And that is the multi-factor authentication. And the extension to that is single sign-on. And how do you ensure that people have the right lateral uh, mobility once they're inside the network, once they're past the, the original authentication, but yet not get what they're not supposed to have. That gets pretty fine-grained and somewhat complex when people are remote so much. Yeah, uh, it, it, it really does. And, and you know, implementing role-based access across government data sets is, is pretty difficult, right? Because we have, you know, completely unclassified information. We have control unclassified or FOU, and then we get into the security class classifications of information. And, and the higher you go, uh, the more easily that's done because the less people who actually have access to that level of network um, uh, to get into it. So, so to me, you know, the the multi-cloud environment, the hybridization of the entire network really does draw, and I think Brian and Karen have both mentioned this, this is all about the data. This is a data-centric security view. And then it is also overlapping that, and I think both Karen and Brian have said this, there's, a view, there's some organization that must have a view of that overlay, right? Um, and, and DHS for the civilian world, uh, Cyber Command for the military world, right? Somebody has that view who can determine that something is amiss. And so, so you know, multi-factor authentication is a way, for example, to demonstrate I am who I say I am, but now what am I getting into? The network, an application, application and data, you know, multiple applications data, I'm in an environment. So, so the CISOs and CIOs really have to sit and think about what am I affording that access to? And what are the credentials that must be presented uh, to make that uh, sufficient to, to render that access? Similarly, on top of that overlay, who's staring at that and says, hey, that Karen Evans gal is getting into an ERP solution with HR information she's not authorized to see. How do we, how do we stop that, right? How do we know that that's going on? So, so to me, this, this tolerance for digital risk management or this, this desire to really stare at where am I encumbering, uh, encountering risk and how do I mitigate it? I'm thrilled that, that I know we're not there yet, but I'm thrilled that the agencies embrace that and are moving ahead with reducing that risk because it only takes one of these things. One of the bad guys has to be right and they're in. Yeah, and a follow-up prompted by something Karen said too, and you mentioned supply chain risk, which is part of this 
larger equation. And you have your, you know, contracting officers, your 1102s, they are interacting not just with agency resources, but with a great deal of supply chain resource. And so there's connections there. Uh, now they're coming from people's homes to the contractors and the bidders, as opposed to from inside the agency. And so I imagine that's a complicating factor because then we've discussed inheritance. In some ways you either inherit or take on whatever risks they have had. And since not everyone is CMMC level five yet, we'll have to wait another generation for that to happen. You've got the industry you've got. You have the industry that you have, but I, I do believe that as this administration has moved forward, you, you are seeing, for example, in Congress um, is enabling a lot of this. And so last year with an uh, NDAA, right, there was a specific provision in place that taught very specifically about five companies that the federal government cannot do business with. I mean, it's really very simple. It's not saying that you can't, as a private industry company, do stuff, but if you're gonna choose to do business within the federal government, then you can't have these covered entities there. You're seeing it with 5G, you're seeing it with as we move out through supply chain. And what we have to really take a look at is what does the United States risk posture wanna be? And then how are we doing that? So this administration is addressing that. It, it permeates everything that we're doing. And so if we are buying products or we are buying services from contractors, the contractors, if they wanna do space in the, uh, and business in the federal government in this space, then they have to attest and we have to be able to look at what those business processes are and how they are doing that, that attesting, right? So that's why I'm, I'm back to um, with the cloud providers and what FedRAMP has done there was a lot of foresight into that, right? Now you can just ratchet up that process because it becomes part of the procurement process to your point. So these then become terms and conditions within the contract. The contracting officer can make sure the right terms and conditions are in there, but it's the CIO operational capabilities that have to make sure that we're enforcing those terms and conditions. And if a vendor is not meeting that, then we have to be able to provide the evidence back to CISA if they have to make certain decisions government-wide and back to our contracting officer for the performance of that particular contract. So this whole common operating uh, picture that we're trying to do as we move into and continue to maintain this type of environment where we're in flux and we're in telework, that way to be able to monitor it becomes very critical, becomes very critical for all these paths of what we want to do. And Brian, a follow-up for you, because uh, these rules do get sometimes, uh, they start out as proposals or executive orders or regulations or proposed regulations, but then they get codified, which means you have to have re regulations. And I'm thinking of something that looks like it's going to be in the NDAA for 2021, and that is a ban on TikTok. Uh, in Defense Department issued devices, or and that could spread to the entire civilian complex of devices. And, you know, it sounds humorous because, you know, people laugh at TikTok, but that's a very specific policy that gets to a bigger issue. And that is what else is adjunct to what people are doing for the federal government as they telework on their devices, whether they're government devices or they're using personal devices. And so with that as proxy for a bigger question, what's the best guidance, you know, from, from CISA on the whole TikTok type of, uh, of uh, conundrum. So TikTok, Stadia, Pokemon Go, you know, th there's, there's a lot of innovations in the application space to provide, you know, recreation and entertainment that's hosted on a personal device. It happens to be on my body as I go to work. And so I'm being personally mindful of the type of data those systems collect and mindful of where that data goes and what can be done with. It's a responsibility we need to educate each individual on as they go. All these specific technologies, if we just don't know where they send the data and what's inferable from that data, there's risk there that has to be managed. Yes, because uh, I can imagine a scenario where someone might, I don't know, pay for a government product or service that's under the micro threshold level and use their government credit card, the data of which might be on their device and therefore that would be seeable by some application or other. Sure, there, so, there's a lot of uh, 
obvious fault modes at a very micro level that folks need to need to be cognizant of of what their macro implications are if they're realized. Yeah, Rob, a comment. Well, it, it, this goes back to um, every user is really now part of the network infrastructure. Every user is a cyber defender, right? And so if you don't ask yourself the questions that Brian just uh, illuminated, right, and then weigh the risk in your head, whether you decide you want to uh, mess with that app and you know where the data goes, um, you are putting yourselves probably in jeopardy. I go back to, you know, because you embrace FedRAMP and you embrace a FedRAMP impact level two or, or FedRAMP moderate cloud, put your information, it doesn't relieve the organization of the responsibility to monitor it, right? To, to understand uh, what's going in and going out. Because remember, the advanced persistent threat doesn't necessarily bring a slow pitch softball to the game. They bring their max shares or fastballs. And so you have to understand what could occur and what the impact of that could be should it occur to mission. And so it, it, it brings me back to everyone's mindful of cyber in the 21st century here, especially in this distributed workforce when we're not comfortable that we're staring at a, a, a display on our office in the Pentagon at 7th and D, wherever it happens to be, uh, or in, in Boston, and, and everything's fine. Um, I had a, a, a day in the Pentagon where a, a very senior person said to me, if it showed up on my screen, I thought it was secure. Right? And I won't say who it was, but, but the fact that it was on the network, on the display, meant it was secure to him. And I said, well, that's not actually the case. Um, but, but remember, there's a lot of people out there that are not yet uh, 21st century cyber warriors, and nor they will they be, but they, they do have to have some fundamental understanding of, of what is going on and the risks associated with it. And when they can't quantify the risks, it probably tells you you shouldn't be there. All right. And I think that's about all the time we have. A good note to end this panel discussion on. I want to thank today's guests. Robert Carey is the Vice President and General Manager for Global Public Sector Solutions at RSA. Karen Evans is the Chief Information Officer at the Homeland Security Department. And Brian Gattoni is the Chief Technology Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agencies. Thank you all very much. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search RSA. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Securing the Telework Workforce, sponsored by RSA on the Federal News Network.